Everybody's got to hear the Value Economics Podcast. Six million ways to die. Choose one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Value Economics Podcast and welcome to 2024, everybody. Welcome to 2024. 2020, I moved the clocks way forward. Okay, 2024. Welcome to 2024, everybody. My name is Sam LaCrosse. Can you dig it? I can. And here we go. We are off with a revamped platform, revamped format, revamped everything basically going into this new year. I'm super excited to kick this off. I am not recording this on a timeline even probably relatively close to this. I'm actually recording this before Thanksgiving. I had a very, very big December. I, I was in the middle of creating all the curriculum and the content for Value Economics Academy. My second book, Toxic Maturity, was going through a bunch of – is currently at the time but not now, hopefully at least, going through a bunch of delays and, and quality assurance issues. Um, I had you know two holidays to get back again before Thanksgiving, before Christmas, before the New Year's. So – it's going to be in the future. It's going to be probably about two months before this episode goes out. But I wanted to get ahead of this because I wanted to make sure that my introductory series into the year, which I do every year, was on point and kicked off in a proper way. And I cannot wait to get into this series. As you'll see going into this future, going into the future as we go through the next three volumes of this series, this is something that I've been talking about for a long time. It's something I think we should be talking about a lot more as a society, particularly as young people, the people who are going after this shiny object, this particular thing that we are currently pretty obsessed with in our culture in a lot of very not great ways in my estimation. And I think it's just it's just something that needs a revisit in the conversation because I am in a lot of ways surrounded by people who fall into the traps of these ideologies, this kind of way of going about life. And I think it's very destructive if you don't have a proper way to look at it where you have perspective on what you're actually doing when you go after the thing that you say that you want, even though you don't know if you really want that thing. And my argument and my thesis for this series that people really don't, I'm also sick, by the way, I'm recovering from a pretty bad cold. So if I sound nasally or whatever, that's why um, turn the podcast off if you want to. But this is something I'm super excited about. I, I know a lot of people in this demographic. I fall into these traps all the time. And again, it's just something that I think needs a broader dialogue to bring forward into the wider culture, should you say. And I think this series is a great opportunity to be honest about it, to break this down, to make some people upset most likely, but also hopefully to free some people and to make sure that we have a more broad and I hate the word inclusive because people have really just kind of pilloried it over the years, rightfully so in a lot of ways. But... I think there there are a lot of ways we can make the idea of success less repressive, less boxed in, and more expansionary where everyone can think of just ways where we can really have an impact on the successful life. What is the good life? What is success? What are all these things? And we got a whopper of a podcast today. I'm super excited about this. This is a idea that I've toyed around in my head with for a long time. I love making up theories. I have license to do it because I guess I have a Substack account and a podcast, so I can just throw shit to the wall and see if it sticks. But I'm genuinely very excited about it. I don't want to wait any longer, so let's get into it. Let's get rolling with this amazing future article that I really, really hope you guys enjoy, and I certainly enjoyed it as well. So like I said, welcome to 2024, and let's get into it. Let's get right into it. So when I've done these series for the last two years to kick off the new year, it's always important that they are strong enough to carry out and fill their time wisely. There is something about filler and junk food and most of the content on the internet that I don't want to fall into. With me increasing my overall output this coming year, I thought very hard about what I wanted to start the year off with. Excuse me. The theme that I decided to go with, as suggested by the title and what I said in my intro so far, is success. Success is a word that I and would be willing to bet be, bet most almost all of you, particularly our younger audience, have thought a lot about as we've come up in this world. Our Gen X parents made sure we were buttoned up, learning from the lessons of the lackadaisical boomers that to get ahead you need to become one, whatever that entailed. We constantly indulged in success pornography via our social media feeds and YouTube. We schemed with our friends about how we were going to get to the top, the top of whatever mountain we desired to climb, how much money we were going to make, etc., However, in doing this, in adopting the, quote, success mindset, we made a critical error. While we constantly dreamed and schemed about how we were going to achieve, quote, success, we never asked a critical question. 
we failed ourselves and everyone who invested in our success hike by never centering on a theme that remains perhaps the most critical element of the journey in and of itself. What is success and why does it matter? When we miss this critical action and juncture inside of our success framework, we miss the whole point of quote success in general. The playbook was simple. Work really hard at something, get a good job at something, make some arbitrary amount of money and just be happy. I have no idea with any, no problem with any of these things. I wish that everyone had the ability to achieve them. The problem with these things is that, as I spelled out in that sentence, we left out the specifics of the issue. Everything was and is arbitrary in that context. We don't know where we're going because we've been so obsessed with the idea of success that we haven't had a time to sit down and see what success actually looks like. The modern narrative of success is something that needs to be drastically upended. Particularly since so much of my friend group has changed hands since I've been ha hanging around more people who want to reach the tops of various mountains. The more I've seen the pitfalls of so many people who want to get someplace they have no idea how to get to or why they're even going down the path that they are going. In the past year, I've started to take the idea of happiness much more seriously. I believe so much of what constitutes, quote, success for a majority of people is antithetical for people's happiness. A society of unhappy people is not a society that is suited for longevity. When the vast majority of a population is bitter, miserable, and unhappy, that is a recipe that leads, ultimately, to disaster, both culturally and individually. This series is set to dive into that narrative and how we can alter it to, hopefully, make success defined and more applicable across the vast majority of people. So, let's begin. I think I've said that probably about three times already, but let's seriously start getting into the meat of the content now. Okay, in the summer of last year, Ice Cube made his first appearance on Joe Rogan's podcast. Cube had been on a mission recently. After constantly being blackballed and shut out of mainstream cultural narratives, from his political positions to the role of race in America to getting his Big Three Basketball League airtime, Cube had had enough. Like he had for his entire life, he was never going to allow anyone to tell him to shut up. Thus, Ice Cube announced publicly that he was going on a Fuck the Gatekeepers tour to finally break out of the matrix of corporate media to speak freely for the first time he deemed in a very long time. His first stop, remarkably, was with Tucker Carlson. In an interview that broke the internet, Ice Cube, one of the original most hardcore gangster rappers in history, and Carlson, about as opposite of that as you can get, talked about everything. Modern masculinity, racial division, identity, and the role of corporate media were all in the docket. Rogan had the very hard job of following the Carlson Cube interview and had him on for two hours to speak about just about everything under the sun. It's hard to state how big of a deal this interview is and was. Joe Rogan, the greatest podcaster in the history of the world, and Ice Cube, who many deemed the greatest rapper ever and in the world, were in a room together to talk shop. A deep discussion between two of the biggest trailblazers in the history of their respective industries is nothing to sneeze at. Further, one of the issues that they talked about, the reason why the conversation was as important as it was, centered on one topic in particular. Success. Anyone of the archetype of person that I spell out earlier should have been all over this interview. But as the conversation unfolded, I have a feeling those people would have been tremendously disappointed. When the conversation turned to the topic of success, the consensus of both Cube and Rogan that, in the mainstream model, success was largely overrated. Cube compared the current nature of clout chasing and success to, quote, blowing out your shoulder. Rogan followed, saying that everything now is a numbers game, how much money you have, how many followers you possess, how many friends do you claim to have in your circle. At some point, the two men stated, the constant competitive nature of the modern success culture is antithetical to success in the modern environment. The conversation overall was very good. However, the conversation was also bizarre. Remember, these are two of the most hyper-successful people in recent memory. Stranger still, these are two of the most hyper-successful people in recent memory who are saying how, how modern culture views success is bad. This is something that we all should be paying attention to. The conversation between Cube and Rogan left me, as all good conversations do, with more questions than answers. Why did no one seem to pay attention to this? Why did they shit on everything that we as a society have held up as successful for other people, particularly the young and impressionable, to follow? Why was this part of the conversation, easily the most consequential and important part, left to be ignored by everyone, particularly the media? There are multiple rabbit holes that we can go down to answer these questions. The first one is the more obvious one. Cube and Rogan don't chase mainstream success because they are successful in the ways that most people who chase mainstream success are not. Cube, like his friend Snoop Dogg, for example, has achieved the remarkable feat of being married to the same woman for the bulk of his life and having multiple principal children with her, 
in the rap game, that's no easy feat. And Rogan can claim the same in stand-up comedy and podcasting. They both do what they do because they enjoy the work, not because they want to make money. They seem to have adopted a philosophy and value system that keeps them grounded and in check. These are things that very few people who are as successful as they are can lay claim to processing. However, I believe that there's a deeper, more profound, uglier point that needs to be brought up, one that is going to be the focus of dissecting how our culture views success. The reason that the conversation between Cube and Rogan wasn't promoted wasn't because people didn't want to listen to Cube and Rogan. The reason the conversation wasn't promoted was because a lot of people had a lot to lose. Ice Cube is a very intelligent person. He didn't name his podcast tour Fuck the Gatekeepers for no reason. The gatekeepers he was mentioning and referring to, the people who have held the strings for the longest time, particularly in a space like corporate media, do not want Ice Cube talking to Joe Rogan or Tucker Carlson or anyone else who can stand on their merit as a truly independent thinker. It's bad for their business, their brand, their credibility. For years, many people have made a lot of money, achieved a lot of influence, and attained a lot of power at the expense of false notions of success. This fake success peddling, this propagandized version of things that people actually want, is good for their business because it keeps their pockets fat and their status raised. There is no commodity that is more valuable in our current culture than success. It is the one thing that everyone wants, the other thing that no one can ever seem to define. This, and everything surrounding it, is all a carefully architected design. These peddlers, the people that hook people on the drug of success, and more on that in the volume 2 of this series, have a lot to lose if important people in the culture such as Ice Cube and Joe Rogan destroy their version of success. They lose money, influence, and power should their narrative be shattered. For people in these high places, they need to keep people going in this direction, to have them shamelessly plug away at an obscure and arbitrary metric of what makes a good life. In fact, what makes the narrative of success so powerful by these gatekeepers of that narrative is that they push the exact opposite of what the people who attain success are desiring. Everyone who wants to be a, quote, success in our times wants something specific, an idealized version of what they want their life to be like. It's an end goal, a destination, a mindset, or something that is concrete and finite. What makes the narrative pushed by our institutions of success so powerful is that it deliberately does not focus on an end goal. Rather, it focuses on the process of attaining success rather than what success actually is. Whenever someone focuses on the process without a defined end state in mind, both the end state and the process see their value fall to zero. If there is no point behind an action, there is nothing that justifies said action. There needs to be a north star, a compass point where someone can align themselves to. This process, naturally, makes it very hard for people desiring success to both define and, more importantly, actually attain it. You cannot hit what you cannot see. You cannot articulate what you cannot define. This narrative of blindness towards success, that there is a generalized list of boxes you check and you magically become happy and fulfilled, is destructive and nonsensical. Individual success cannot be defined by mainstream principles. They're completely antithetical to one another. Therefore, the mainstream narrative of success stands as fundamentally broken. The reason why so many people, particularly young people, don't feel like a success, don't feel like their life matters, and aren't living the way they want to live, is all designed. The gated institutional narrative surrounding success has prevented almost everyone who falls for it from reaching what is actually a pretty attainable thing. However, when you've been brainwashed, when you don't know any better, you begin to realize just how out of it the people who dictate that narrative have you. I have dubbed this phenomenon the success masturbation hypothesis, ironically and hilariously abbreviated as the SMH. The success masturbation hypothesis is defined as the dopamine-driven desire to attain short-term success without long-term fulfillment that is used by actually successful people to exploit those who are trying to get fulfillment. It is a bait-and-switch, what has been used to near perfection by people who gain power and profit off of the woes of people they exploit. The success masturbation hypothesis is the key to understanding the trap that most people in our culture have fallen into when it comes to success. It is the gateway drug, the thing that people latch onto as a solution for their success problems. Unfortunately for them, they do not know that they have been hoodwinked. Instead of being given a pathway to success, they are instead being given a hedonic treadmill to make other people successful and themselves miserable. It is the undoing of the wiring of the SMH that is the key to this dissecting the gated institutional narrative surrounding our modern-day success culture. To do this, we first need to dive further into what the success masturbation hypothesis is and how it came about. 
Next, we will dis- discuss, dissect rather the SMH to describe why is it a bad thing for people to fall into, why people fall into it, and why people architect it. Finally, we will discuss an alternative route to the SMH, one that actually gives you a pathway to becoming a successful person in whatever fashion you choose. No lotion required. As with any social contagion that we have to contend with in this world, centers of influences are always a good place to start monitoring how and why it spreads. Without people of influence to circulate an idea throughout the masses, there is no possibility of the idea taking hold. Like Ad Sad wrote, bad ideas are like parasites. They catch hold, suck the life out of you, and leech onto you until you're no longer of use to that idea. With the success masturbation hypothesis, the key driver for its adoption are the people that sell the modernized version of success upon the masses without context. They sell a version of success that they have attained and use other people to further fuel that success by selling them meaningless ideas, processes, and items surrounding success so that they can continue to climb the influence ladder. There's nothing of value being provided in the SMH. Rather, it is a distortion of value, a false item. Something to chase that rhyme or reason as to why and how that thing is valuable to people who want to achieve, quote, success. The biggest and most successful perpetrator and distributor of the success masturbation hypothesis is Alex Hormozzi. Hormozzi, arguably the biggest social media business or business social media influencer in the world, has had perhaps the most meteoritic rise of anyone on social media over the past two years. Teaming up with his wife, Layla, the two have taken the world by storm, cranking out content like no one's business to keep people who follow them, or give people who follow them, rather, a, quote, new way of thinking about entrepreneurship and how to succeed inside of it. Hormozzi, who started out his life in Baltimore, Maryland, and eventually moved across the country to California to get away from his parents, most notably his father, got rich after a long, hard slog in entrepreneurship by launching gyms around the country. After marrying his girlfriend, the two continued to scale up, starting multiple other companies and selling them off for their now trademarked $100 million mark. Currently, the two run Acquisition.com, a private equity firm that invests in high-growth startups. I should be clear as I start this section. Alex Ramosi is not a deliberately bad person. From everything I've heard, he actually seems like a very nice person. He's very soft-spoken, humble, and seemingly someone who should be looked up to based on his personality. This post is not set out to slander people like Alex Hormozzi and others that we'll talk about later in this series. Rather, it is meant to cast a light on how, particularly given their cultural clout, they've hijacked the narrative of success to the detriment of all who look to them for what turns out to be false guidance. What Alex Hormozzi has done wrong, the thing that we need to analyze as it relates to the SMH, is that he has adopted the maximizer mindset at the expense of his legions of devoted fans. Hormozzi, who has already achieved massive success through starting a private equity company, having a net worth of at least $100 million and being bowed down to by millions of aspirational young people, is now in the position of telling other people how to achieve the success that he and his wife have had. The prime example of this was earlier last year, when Hormozzi released his second book entitled $100 Million Leads. The sequel to his first blockbuster, $100 Million Offers, Hormozzi hyped up the release of the book as perhaps his greatest crowning achievement in business. He debuted the book over a webinar that had over half a million people on it, walking through his process of the earliest stages of the sales cycle to give entrepreneurs his best formula with how to start acquiring customers. The book launch was estimated to be the most successful in history, with Armozi clearing millions of dollars in only 90 minutes of work. The most interesting part about Hormozzi's authorship is his price point. With the exception of the webinar, both of his books are available online for only $1 per volume. This is a very odd thing, particularly since this is Hormozzi's life work. The couple has justified this over time by stating that the number one asset they believe to be the most important in business, education, shouldn't be beholden to large business schools or people with a lot of money. Therefore, their mission is to make business education as democratized as possible, giving away as many things for free or for low cost as possible. This on its face is a very philanthropic thing to do. People who want to spread knowledge for people in a cost-effective way usually have very pure motives behind what they're doing. This is the narrative that surrounds the Hermosi Empire, and for good reason. However, and per usual with any rapid rise to fame, we must dig beneath the surface and see if the intentions that are seen behind them are as pure as they would have you believe. And they're not. So let's start with the obvious red flag. The entrepreneurship process for anyone who has attempted it is almost limitless. 
there is never enough knowledge that you can have to deploy on your journey to become successful in an entrepreneurship setting. The entrepreneurship process is tens, at minimums, of steps long. What in the world does two books on two very small parts of that process do to make an impact in someone's holistic journey? Next to nothing, I would be willing to bet. And I'm a bad entrepreneur at this point. So the next logical question would be something like this. If Alex Ramosi is really who he says he is, a modern-day Nostradamus of entrepreneurs, why shouldn't people wait to start their journey until they get all of that information from him? Why should they work with incomplete information? If we're taking the Hormozy method at face value, these are all questions that give away the game. The second question you need to ask is this. Is Alex Hormozy, a proposed capitalist and one of the most successful entrepreneurs of recent memory, really, quote, giving everything away for free? It doesn't make logical sense at all. It defeats the entire purpose of everything that Hormozy claims to support and tell his supporters to go and do. So you must ask yourself, if he and his wife give away most of their information for free, which I'm not disputing that they do, and now have no official product or business of their own other than their private equity firm, then how in the world are they still rolling in money and increasing in net worth every single day by millions of dollars? The answer to this, when you look objectively, is also very simple. They're going after bigger fish. They've graduated customer bases. Alex Ramosi, particularly in the last few years, has done something that is very hard to do. Establish himself as a legitimate expert and thought leader. He's undisputedly brilliant with his knowledge of business and entrepreneurship. He writes books for free, remember, with that last of which turned out to be the greatest single-day book launch in history. This is not simply, quote, giving away knowledge for free. Rather, it's something else. Advertising. The purpose of the Hormozy's private equity firm, Acquisition.com, is to invest in high-growth companies and startups to jack up their revenues and then turn them over on the market for profit. Private equity, for the uninitiated, is easily the most ruthless branch of finance in the business world. Entire management suites are often put through a wood chipper. Strategies are rebuilt from the ground up. Equity is fire sold to the people who buy the company. The ROI for people who can do it well is nothing short of massive. As someone who is an author, I can tell you firsthand that an incredible minority of my colleagues get rich selling books, particularly ones in the inflated market of business. Rather, the best authors are the ones who are able to use their books as a sales funnel to their other businesses. Jocko Willink is a great example of this. He's created a supplement line, an apparel company, a podcast and media business, a publishing house, and a fight management company out of one book, Extreme Ownership. Hormozy and others like him have done the same thing, but just leveraged more into extremely high ROI-dense fields. I believe Alex Hormozy to be mostly a force for good. That is nothing to sneeze at in today's world. However, I also believe Alex Hormozy serves not as a force multiplier, but a force stagnator. He's not in it to help his audience self-actualize, because no successful businessman can lay claim to doing that. He's still making a profit just off of success mongering. He's the leading proponent of the success masturbation hypothesis, the SMH, not because he's not a success and doesn't want other people to be. It's because he profits off of a blanketed quick solution for a very complicated and specific problem. The success masturbation hypothesis is defined earlier. But what it looks like in principle is very evident if you know what and how to look for it. What the SMH looks like is exactly what all the success mongers in our society sell, constant information. With just a couple more Instagram reels, by just reading a few more books, by just listening to one more podcast, you can have, quote, the edge. You can climb the mountain, getting over the top of people if you just put a little more effort towards your preparation. It's almost no different than a morphine drip, although the SMH is more likely to cause pain than to relieve it. Additionally, all this information overload, this constant masturbation of things that will make you, quote, successful, are next to useless in the long run. The reasoning behind this is that no one, particularly our success mongers, wants you to ever be done improving or leveling up. When you look at the Hermosi example, for instance, you can see this being very clear. Hermosi openly has stated that his number one product he makes is education. If people feel content, if people feel like they have enough, then the value of his business model drops to zero. Finally, the SMH is flawed across the board because there is no incentive for the people who peddle the SMH to get you to their destination. There is no incentive for, you, for them to get you to reach fulfillment. Their job, rather, is to keep you getting off without having the lasting fulfillment that comes with getting anywhere. This is the key difference between actual masturbation and having sex. Masturbation is done by yourself for yourself. Sex, if done right, is done with another person for the other person. 
It's an inherently selfish act versus an inherently selfless act. One leads to emptiness, the other leads to contentment. And as mentioned, there is nothing more dangerous in our culture for our success mongers and their business models than their consumers being content. Success to our success mongers is marketed as something that is clearly not, easily accessible and something that can and should be applicable to everyone. But very often, this is not what happens at all. The true cost of greatness, knowing what goes into making something like Alex Ramosi's business empire, is a natural filtration system by design. Not everyone should be Alex Ramosi because not everyone gets value out of what Alex Ramosi does. But due to the SMH and the culture of success being a unified and undifferentiated ideal, people get sucked into this trap all the time, which leads to disappointment and stagnation across their identities and value systems. The biggest farce of the success masturbation hypothesis is that it deliberately disincentivizes doing. It is not focused on actually getting you from point A to point B, but rather to, get, to keep you at point A with tremendous near paralyzing anxiety about going to point B. To be put in a sexual term, it is meant to keep you neutered, to keep you in your place from ever interacting with a person you're attracted to in real life. There's always another mastermind, another discord group, another new porn scene, another TikTok influencer to keep you castrated. Our success mongers keep you addicted to quote success while numbing you down to avoid action and do nothing. Like masturbation, you think you're getting fulfilled, you think you're actually going somewhere. But after the post-nut clarity hits, you're left contemplating the emptiness of both the act and everything surrounding the act in and of itself. What is really going on is simply a sprint down the dopamine brainstem, chasing a high that you need to keep getting yourself off to to sustain just long enough so that you don't feel completely miserable. You go from one tenant to another, hop from one success plan to the next, with no plan of actual action as to how you make it closer to the success that you actually want. At this juncture, we need to ask ourselves a key question. Why do people fall for this? Why do people end up incubating the success masturbation hypothesis and internalizing it in such a deep way? Why can people, particularly the young, not see that they're not getting anywhere by doing exactly as they're told? An easy and credible explanation as to why people fall for the SMH is because it sells hope without any work. Just like any other masturbatory behavior, it is only good because it feels good. It feels like you're leveling up by reading the latest book that Adam Grant recommended. It feels like you're improving when you start working a business you have no interest in starting. It feels like you're getting somewhere when you start reading books you couldn't give a shit about, but start reading anyway. What is missing from all of this, the key piece from the SMH, is the one thing our society's success mongers conveniently don't want to sell. A vision. Any domain that the SMH touches, other than the raw feeling it produces, and it automatically begins to dissipate in what it actually is. Hedonistic and meaningless tripe, with no real value underneath it to support it. An action or behavior is only constructive and positive should it be bolstered underneath with corresponding and worthwhile value. Anything else, and it leads you down to misery, chasing endless things that you don't really want in the first place. But yet, unfortunately, so many people are still falling for the SMH. They still believe that it's worth it. To drive the point home, we must make a definitive case as to, contrary to popular opinion, the SMH is as destructive as I've made it out to be. The easiest persona to poke fun at in regards to the success masturbation hypothesis is easily the self-improvement guy, or keeping up with our acronyms, the SIG. Self-improvement guy is always looking for, quote, the edge. He's always wants to, he always wants to tack on the one thing to get him to, quote, where he wants to be. He is constantly searching, peeking around every corner, upending every social norm to get to a place where he can finally make the magic of his self-improvement happen. SIG is relentless in how he goes about his self-development journey. He listens to all the right people, most specifically Gary Vee and Grant Cardone, who tell him to, quote, crush unspecific things. He has a podcast on constantly, never letting his head go one minute without dissecting some massive revelation that's sure to, quote, change his game. He rips through book after book, taking no notes, but making mental cues to check in once in a while after they collect dust on the bookshelf. That's for saps. What good would an AI software be if you did everything manually, he says to himself. Self-improvement guy continues on this path for years, never letting up, never settling. He's either hustling or grinding, never anything in between. He constantly searches for new role models, new people he can monitor, people who can continue to upend the social order of business, life, and philosophy. These things can get outdated quickly, you see, especially in our time. Gotta stay up on the game or risk being left behind. And no way a guy like SIG is ever going to be left behind.
The entire time, SIG is uncompromising about his approach. He wouldn't be caught dead taking a break, questioning his beliefs, or thinking that the, his unbreakable work ethic could possibly have a net negative return on his investment. These things are self-evident, you see. When you work hard, good things must happen in return, right? That's what all of his heroes tell him in YouTube videos and Instagram lies. Just grind, don't stop, and magic things will happen. You will be a success. However, the self-improvement guy begins to notice something, something that horrifies him. He doesn't believe it to be true. The evidence is indisputable. And yet, this depresses him to his core. He cannot fathom the thing that he has spent his life trying to change, the thing that he has oriented his life around, has yielded this result. What has happened is that, even though he has oriented his life totally around self-improvement, he never actually improves. Self-improvement guy has realized, tragically, that all of his work has been for nothing. There have been no notable gains in his philosophy, no edge gotten, no closer to where he needs to be. His refusal to change because of his urgency to follow the prescribed playbook of what everyone else has done led him down the success rabbit hole to unfulfillment and misery. All he has is information, the most useless commodity in the world, something that only does something for you if you can properly deploy it. And with our modern success culture and the people who peddle it, that is the step of the equation that is conveniently left out. People like SIG are left behind to stew in their own muck. The biggest lie with the success masturbation hypothesis is that it makes you believe that where you're going that you're going somewhere when you're actually going nowhere. The part where actual work has to be done towards a goal that only you can have is left out of the mark entirely. The people that push the SMH leave out the fact that only you can interpret what success looks like for you in your life. They leave out the cultural narrative surrounding success is actually, as it turns out, not what most people want, would take when it comes to living a successful life. The SMH leads you to believe that improvement by itself, rather than what the improvement leads to, is the end-all be-all when it comes to success in life. Rather than it moving towards a goal of ultimate contentment and fulfillment within life, it deliberately steers you away from those things. It keeps you down, getting yourself off to basically meaningless actions surrounding your own development and improvement without having you do the hard internal work of knowing what you value and what you want. The SMH is destructive because it removes outcomes that are specific to the individual from the narrative that surrounds success. Rather, it appropriates ones onto each person, stilling their autonomy and culturally reinforcing something that is most likely undesirable to that person. It does not do anything to teach them how to think. Rather, it teaches them the opposite. It teaches them how to submit, how to play their game for only their purposes. The cultural narrative around success does not care about the individual. It only cares what the individual can do to blend in with the broader narrative. The success masturbation hypothesis, ironically, actually does the opposite of what it claims to do in the broader culture. Instead of taking you towards being a quote success, it routes you directly away from it, towards something that doesn't resemble success at all. It takes all notions of what being a success looks like, destroys them, and leaves you and your post-nut clarity to contemplate what most believe to be their only rational outcome, that you are the problem, not the flawed philosophy that has infected the culture. Like with all things that move you in a circle instead of down a straight line, like the success masturbation hypothesis, you end up feeling nothing more than duped. You feel conned and fooled, completely at the mercy of other people. You feel like you've wasted time, that all your work has done nothing but appease your most impotent senses and feelings of being successful. And the sad part is, you'll be right. Whenever you end up wasting your time running on the hedonic treadmill without stepping off and actually moving down a directional path towards something you might actually want, you end up feeling alone, stuck, and worthless. You're even more lost than you were before you began your success journey. At least before you started, you had some goal, some vision of where you wanted to get to. Unfortunately, you now have neither of those things. You only have your, their shattered remains, and a lot less time to make something out of them, I might add. The biggest feeling that someone who has been duped by the success masturbation hypothesis feels is regret. The lack of regret in life, in multiple studies, has shown to be the number one marker of a life well lived. The one thing you cannot get back in your life is time. It is the ultimate resource, the one thing that keeps all the others in life in their proper place. Without time to fall back on, not much else in life means anything. It's the finality and scarcity of the little time we have that bolsters all the value we create for ourselves on the back end. The way that regret manifests in the success masturbation hypothesis is by alerting you to the fact that, when you buy into it wholesale, you end up wasting so much time with so little clarity. You don't know what you value, what success means to you. You simply swallowed the blue pill of success culture wholesale, 
not giving a second thought as to if this thing is actually desirable in a way where you could derive value from it. Worse still, you have also wasted your precious energy and, most likely, other personal resources into something that has done nothing but addict you to a feeling that is both short-lived and short-sighted. When it comes to the SMH and masturbation in general, the feeling lasts only for as long as you get your next hit drawn into your body. It only works unless you mandatorily subjugate yourself to something that is suboptimal. If you end up creating an environment where the only choice you give yourself is the one that will leave you less fulfilled and less happy than you what you were before. The success masturbation hypothesis's biggest sin is that it has led everyone in our culture to believe that only one version of success is desirable. It is exactly what Ice Cube and Joe Rogan discussed earlier. The gatekeepers of modern success culture only have one way to go about things. Whenever that institutional narrative is disrupted, a lot of people have a lot to lose. Therefore, the SMH is necessary for their survival due to its inherent lack of success embedded within the philosophy itself. There is also an embedded element of insecurity that the SMH has within it. That insecurity, when it manifests in a person who has been ideologically captured by the SMH, tells that person that it is wrong to have an alternative version of what success looks like for them. That if you don't have what someone like Alex Ramosi has, you're somehow less of a person. You don't work hard enough, log too few hours to be accepted into a community of people who actually are working to do something productive with their life. It is well worth noting just how much the SMH leaves out of the cultural context and just how repressive it is when nothing is upheld as a standard outside of the narrative of success. There is no room for dissent or differentiation, no room for someone to think outside of the box that the success masturbation hypothesis puts people in. There is only one way, the way of the gatekeepers, the way that they have deemed the conversation can only go. The success masturbation hypothesis has led everyone to think that only one definition of success is desirable, that it is somehow missing the mark to not have what someone such as Alex Ramosi has. It is their way or the highway, the pathway of the success mongers in our society, or the pathway of the losers that have to look up to them and lick their boots. Any variation from what the success mongers say, and you enter into forbidden territory. These people, like those who buy into every bit of the SMH, have done no introspection. Like masturbation, they have simply assumed as to what makes them tick in terms of love and passion. With success, the same logic applies. Should you have no idea what makes you tick, what gets you fired up and wanting to succeed, you will keep running in circles, and letting the success masturbation hypothesis run circles around you. These people have fallen into the cultural trap of only responding to the stimuli that everyone puts in front of them, rather than learning to discern properly as to what and how they respond to the trappings of success. This begs a question. If the success masturbation hypothesis is the problem, then what's the solution? Earlier this year, or, or later, I, earlier this year, I'm still, I, I'm in 2023, I'm recording this, by the way, so later last year, Andrew Clavin, the author, writer, and podcast host for The Daily Wire, hosted the head of The Blaze and cable news and talk radio icon, Glenn Beck, onto his YouTube channel. Clavin, had, who had gotten into more short, shorter-form discussions, shorter, long-form discussions, geez, I'm all over the place, shorter, long-form discussions on his platform, had known Beck for a very long time. The two had run in the same circles, fought the same battles, and had long advocated for similar causes. They knew each other well and what each other valued, particularly in the political domain, where they currently have the most relevance. But interestingly, or perhaps not when you look at it, Clavin has not brought, had not brought Beck on to talk about politics at all. Instead, Clavin brought on Beck to talk about investments he and his media company were making in the future of American culture. Clavin, for the longest time, had been an incredibly vocal canary in the coal mine surrounding the secession of the culture to people who hate the values that he loves. He was forced out of Hollywood writing for it, blackballed to such a degree that he nearly lost everything. He knows the pain and also knows that his conservative principles are to last. It will not be because of congressional hearings and Supreme Court decisions. It will be because of the books that will be read and the movies that will be watched. This topic has been one of, if not the most, focal point of their cultural conversation in recent years. Because of the reportings of people such as Chris Rufo and the politics of people such as Ron DeSantis, Disney, the most successful entertainment company in the history of the world, is in a tailspin. Movies are losing money left and right. Films such as Father Stew, Jesus Revolution, and The Sound of Freedom, movies that were on shoestring budgets with largely no-name actors, excluding Kelsey Grammer and Mel Gibson, who had also been blacklisted, by the way, were beating out titanic film franchises such as Indiana Jones. It is my belief that we are undergoing a seismic shift in the way our culture views entertainment and storytelling in the modern age. 
Andrew Breitbart has the most accurate quote of anyone I'd ever heard when it comes to cultural commentary, and it certainly rings true to this, this discussion. Politics is downstream from culture. It is this insight from Breitbart that rips open the veneer on so many things. This is why I tell people that it is largely a fruitless endeavor to focus purely on politics when you want to make societal change. Government is outdated and sluggish. Culture, on the contrary, is innovative and quick by necessity. People, whether they admit it or not, are drawn to excellence and quality. These are the things that they always have, currently do, and always will attract humans. You can fire off countless examples of this truism in recent times. The debate about transgender children wasn't discussed at all until Matt Walsh made What is a Woman? ESG and asset management firms were not nearly as fiery of a topic until Vivek Ramaswamy wrote a book and started a competing firm and take market share from them. Michael Moore has been loathed by the American right for his entire life, not because of what he did in government, but rather what he did in storytelling. When you look at what each side of the political aisle hates most, look to the people who dictate the culture, not just the politics themselves. What Beck shared when Clavin brought him on was very interesting. Instead of investing money into more things related to conservative news and commentary, he said he was investing in exactly what Clavin had been crying out for for years, American culture. He had hired artists, painters, and writers to move to Dallas to begin working on shifting the conversation of the current culture to things that he believed would be far more sustainable and better for the world. He was hiring the best minds in art, composition, and storytelling to wage war on the obvious failure of American culture to not uplift its citizens, but rather to degrade and demoralize them. As we've discussed before, beauty matters in our society. It matters that beauty, the closest thing man can make to the transcendent, is of the highest quality that we can muster. It matters that not only we take care of things, but we make them to such a high standard that people are awestruck when they gaze upon them. The beautiful things, the things that are most pure, are the things that matter to us because they are an ideal, a constant reminder of what we should be, what we should be, or who we should be, and who we could be, should we go through a similar refinement process. Show me a society without beauty, like ours is unfortunately becoming, and you will also see a nation in decline. The conversation with Beck and Clavin, therefore, was not about politics, nor was it entirely about surrounding culture either. The reason why conversations like the one of the two men had are of utmost importance is the point they made about investing in making the world more beautiful is something that is universally transferable about all areas of our lives. It is a specified version of success based on value-driven principles. And this is where Hollywood has it all wrong, by the way. They are constantly learning the very hard way that the current standing of the industry, constantly pumping out shit movies and television because it can get a positive ROI and be deemed a, quote, success by certain institutional critics, is failing with the people they most need to win over, their customers. It is no different than the government serving regulators than their citizens. When you fail to recognize what your market actually wants and who they actually are, you shouldn't be surprised when, over time, they begin to hate your guts. Success could be making it big and raking in a lot of money, sure. But it absolutely is not that if it's, that's not what your values point to. The sin of masturbatory behavior is that it completely removes lasting value from the equation in favor of bland and undifferentiated hedonism and materialism. Put simply, it takes you completely out of favor. It outsources your autonomy to someone who doesn't know you, care about you, or more than likely wants the best for you. What success should do, on the contrary, is mean something to you. When you internalize your own success based on your own values, not those of other people, you learn to see how wonderfully unique the way you view life is. If you're honest with yourself, you'll find out things that will make you far happier than most things in the culture could ever hope to do. Personal success, not success based on the success masturbation hypothesis, matters immensely because it means something to you. Moving forward, it will continue to mean some more both personally and culturally than it ever has before. This is where art has, sadly, failed people. So now that we know where the differentiation point is, where does one start with rewiring your brain from the success masturbation hypothesis? To get to that starting point, one would be wise to begin by contemplating the end point. Without a defined end goal, success is impossible. If one cannot explain the rationale behind a process, that process should not exist. Any existence of a meaningless process makes the larger systems it, quote, supports bloated and slow. When you want to look at an organization in dysfunction, look at the functionality of its institutions that reside underneath it. Going down a path towards anything without knowing the destination is a fool's errand. 
The reason why the success masturbation hypothesis has been able to warp the brains of so many young people in today's world is because it doesn't challenge them. It spoon feeds them an amorphous and undefined end state, telling them to go after it with all the resources that they can muster and basically see what happens. This obviously is a horrific strategy when it comes to just about anything in life, but particularly when it comes to your own personal development and self-improvement. But what about, quote, successes in the journey, not the destination, some might say. I would say, that's nice. It probably would have gone well on a $25 photocopy portrait for your mom's office for Christmas, should you have cared enough to get her one in the first place, you jerk. But jokes or non-jokes aside, this does have some merit to it. You will certainly learn things along the way as you approach your larger goals, things that will make you look internally to question the things that you really want, particularly as the road gets tougher and the challenges against you become stronger. However, the song remains the same. Even though the value might, at the end of the day, be in the journey, there can be no journey if you do not have an endpoint that the journey in question leads to. A journey, by definition, is defined by both a starting and ending point. The starting point is easy. It is where you are now, where your current state of non-success is. The end point is far harder. Where do you want to go exactly? Who do you want to be? What does money mean to you? Do you really want a nice house or car? Why? To all of these questions. It is much harder to tell yourself what you actually want and why you actually want it than what you would realize internally and initially. This is because honesty, at least initially, is a very scary thing. It's a very frightening occasion when you have to finally confront your own bullshit that you've told yourself and how easily you've been manipulated by the SMH, and for how long. However, as another old saying goes, better late than never. It is much easier to know yourself later on in the process than to never know yourself at all. If you cannot define a specific reason for doing something, whether it is related to self-improvement or not, you should not be doing that something. Your time, as mentioned, is the most valuable resource you have. If you can't answer why you're building a business, stop building that business. If you're constantly questioning why you started to do a podcast, stop doing that podcast. If you're writing a book simply because the people you look up to told you to, while you have no interest in doing so, put your pencil down yesterday. Your life is too short to have your sovereignty left on the weak side of the toughness gap. Reclaim it and learn for yourself how you can use your values to find the success that you want. On top of this, another key revelation must be felt within as you go down the route of self-improvement. You must remember that this is your journey in your self-improvement to accomplish your goals. There are rare occasions in your life where you must succumb to your innate human desire to be unapologetically selfish. This is one of them. The reasoning that this is required is because if you are not dedicating your personal energy and resources towards optimizing for something that you want, you will be made a victim by someone else who knows what they want. This is not cynical. This is reality. Therefore, a hard and fast rule to follow when starting to follow success, as well as one that avoids the success masturbation hypothesis entirely, would be something such as this. Any outcome that leads to someone else's success more than your own is, by definition, not the best option for you. Self-improvement is designed, at least in theory, to be an optimization layer for you to get to your goals in the most efficient way possible. However, following the trends of things such as modern, quote, capitalism, it has been distorted and perverted by people who have mastered the game to further enrich themselves at the expense of those who possess less cultural clout and resources than you do. The success masturbation hypothesis has created a proverbial water slide constantly gushing down seemingly endless information while simultaneously slicking the trek up so it's almost impossible to make it to the top should you buy into what they're doing wholesale. Whenever you begin to take a new part of your life seriously, ask yourself this question. Who stands to gain from this? What do they achieve by giving away the game, by requesting that I emulate what they say and do? When you ask these questions, the intentionality behind the success mongers in our society sl slowly but surely begins to reveal itself to you. When you know what someone's intentions are, you finally begin to perceive just how sacrilegious their role is compared to what it's marketed as. Intentionality is the key to any domain of interaction with people. This is particularly true when your own personal resources are at stake. If part of someone's pitch, particularly over internet content, is that you have to throw away your old life, completely adopt their philosophy, or cut people off that you have loved and supported you for years on accusations that they're, quote, holding you back, you should immediately pause and reflect. That's not the behavior of someone who wants their success. It's the behavior of someone who wants to control you. It is the playbook of every cult leader in modern history, and one that you should certainly avoid to fall into. Finally, if I haven't said it enough already throughout my years doing this, a great reminder to always have floating around the back of your head 
would be to chase value, not success. Success, as perfectly shown by the success masturbation hypothesis, is malleable. Value, as shown by quite literally everything else in the world, is not. Value begets success. Success does not beget value. People are a success because they produce something valuable for people to take in. Without a corresponding value add that they bring to the table, no one can be a success in anything. If you don't know what you value and why, you will always be left chasing something and, more tragically, being left empty when that something doesn't fulfill you. The main loser of people who don't know what their core values are is you. When you don't know what is important to you, what your North Star is, you will constantly grift onto anything that gives you a good feeling about whatever you deem success to be. This is how the success masturbation hypothesis gets people. It wraps them in comfort without giving them any sense of what they're seeking. So to keep that comfort, people continue to chase the, the SMH. When they chase the SMH and do not pause to consider the why underneath it, they run low on steam because of exhaustion. As the tired saying goes, you can only beat yourself off for so long before you start to chafe. The pain of comfort is that, eventually, the comfort fades, as it does with everything surrounding the concept. Further, when you reach your collective and undifferentiated endpoint, you will most likely re realize you never wanted what that thing had to offer anyways. It's a lose-lose for everyone, and you in particular. Value is the only reliable indicator of something that will sustain you through tragedy and hardship. It is the only key way to gain something that resembles sustainable success. The success mongers of our societies, the ones that have opened the door to the success masturbation hypothesis, leave the most important part of the equation, value, out when discussing what one needs to do to become successful. Success cannot be defined by any one person for another person. It is an internal metric, not an external one. If you want to become a success, you must start by learning that success is not, and should not, be as easy as the cultural errors of the SMH will have you believe. It is not a band-aid solution. It is something that must be earned through deep and hard internal work that you need to do for yourself. Value is the thing that provides a window inside your own head as to what you really want. To discover real success, we would be wise to begin as to what brings us real value. The success masturbation hypothesis, like all masturbatory behavior, is meant to keep us sedated, not fulfilled. It is not meant to propel you towards anything meaningful, but rather to empower and enrich those who claim they want to help us. Success is not a one-size-fits-all solution but rather something that must be discovered through each individual person through a hard sense of reflection and internal work. It is something that you, and you alone, must determine. Anyone who says otherwise, most likely, is trying to take advantage of you. You do yourself a favor to not let that happen, particularly in a topic as crucial as this. This is particularly relevant as we move forward in this series. In Volume 2, which comes out in two weeks, we'll be going to be talking about what happens when the SMH runs away in itself, when people fully drink the cultural success Kool-Aid, it's a disturbing topic, but one that will be a lot of fun to dig into, and one that will hopefully prove to be very useful. I hope you'll stay along for the ride. Oh, and fuck the gatekeepers. We're just getting started with this stuff, folks. We got two more heaters coming throughout this next month. Uh, again, the updated content schedule is going to be as follows. We have the now weekly guest on on this Wednesday. I cannot wait for this person to come on. It's someone I've been waiting to get on for a long time. I, I can't wait for it. Feature article dropping on my Substack as well. And then the first rendition of Value Economics Weekly this Friday as well, which is going to be great. Recap of the past week. Looking forward to this upcoming or the upcoming week that we have. A little look back, a little look forward, and on we go. So that's going to be great. So the success series, I'm so excited about this, guys. This has been something I've wanted to talk about for a very, very, very long time. And again, we're just getting started. We're just poking the bear here. We're going to get really, really deep into this topic, and I can't wait for it. So happy new year. Let's go crush 2024 in a positive success way, I should say, not in the way of the SMH. And own the day, open your mind. Have a great day, guys. Thanks for listening.